drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to the drawing room, a space for intimate and surprising conversations. I'm Andy Park. Julian Assange has become a symbol over the years. Just mentioning his name conjures up ideas of press freedoms and government tyranny or of threats to national security, depending on where your own ideals lie. But behind the symbol is a person dealing with an extended period of detention and surrounded by family members who are also impacted by the realities of his imprisonment. A UK court has just approved the extradition of Julian Assange to the US, but a new documentary, Ithaca, follows Assange's partner, Stella, and his father, John, in the months leading up to the first extradition hearing in 2020. Ben Lawrence is the film's director. Gabriel Shipton is the producer. He's also Assange's brother. And they're both my guests tonight in the drawing room. Welcome to you both. Come on in. Take a seat. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Gabriel, when did this film begin? Not Julian's story as such, which has obviously been going for a long time now, but the desire for a movie and a desire for this movie focusing on this period of this story. Well, I mean, there's been many movies, you know, made about Julian and, and WikiLeaks over the years, but this one sort of came, the I, the concept sort of began in, in, in 2019 after Julian had been taken uh, from the, the Ecuadorian embassy and uh, was put in uh, Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison outside of London. I had, you know, I've never really been involved uh, with WikiLeaks or anything like that. I've sort of admired Julian from afar, but over the years, uh, always visited him in the UK wherever he was uh, being detained, whether it was at uh, under house arrest at Ellingham Hall or in the Ecuadorian embassy over those seven years. Um, but when I saw him in the prison uh, in 2019, I went there with my father and uh, John Pilger and we went to visit him and he was being uh, kept in the health wing of the of the prison um, and the prison is called the health wing it's not you know you don't sit up in in, uh, in bed and, and they bring you cups of tea and pieces of toast uh, the prison is actually called the health wing at belmarsh the hell wing it's where the most uh, desperately suicidal prisoners are kept uh, people who are terminally ill uh, there was one uh, person next door to julian in a cell a man who had no arms and legs and the prisoners there are kept in their cell 23 hours a day. And it was that day uh, that I saw Julian, and I'd never seen him like that before, even during his time in the Ecuadorian embassy when, uh, after 2017, when his visiting uh, rights were taken away and things like that, I'd never seen him uh, this distressed and, and uh, you know, just he'd changed so much uh, when I saw him that day that I left the prison thinking, that I might, uh, I might never see him again, um, you know, if, if, you know, from that day. So that's when I, I started thinking I'm a film producer and I, and I started thinking, how can we tell this side of the story, this, this side of the story that nobody's seeing a hu and, and a humanistic um, type, of, uh, type of story about Julian uh, as a person and as a man. But we had the problem that Julian is obviously in prison. So uh, we had to find another way into this story. And, and at the time, my father was traveling around Europe. Uh, he'd begun advocating for Julian uh, more intensely. Uh, he was traveling around Europe, around the UK, around Australia, uh, sort of a father fighting for his son. And 
we started following him with a cameraman, uh, Nils, Nils Laderfog, our Danish cameraman, started following him around full time uh, as he traveled around Europe uh, advocating for Julian. And yeah, we went from there. And, um, you know, eventually just before the extradition hearing, uh, which happened in 2020, Ben Lawrence uh, came on board. And he and Ben really brought, you know, the, his uh, directing expertise. He did 13 hours of interview uh, with John, and th and those interviews like formed the backbone of the film. And that's sort of, you know, how we got to that process there. With you know, where Ben joined the film, that's that's the story. So Ben, as the film's director, you're creating a documentary here with people around you who are deeply, deeply invested in this story. As Gabriel just mentioned, you also came in to the project uh, more or less later in, in the production. So how do you balance that as a director yourself? I mean, we see in the film that you're not always asking questions that your subjects want to answer, notably when you ask uh, Assange's father, John, uh, about his estrangement from Julian in his early life, and he, you know, clearly bristles at, at that question. Uh, yeah, look, it's a it's a difficult balance to strike. I mean, the many kind of complex issues we're trying to tell this story. Uh, my what appealed to me about it was was trying to understand Julian, a global figure, through the journey of his father, and 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 also through the way John relates to the world. And I think there's there's clear clear comparisons then. Uh, in that as well. But I mean, in terms of balancing the story, we had a, a complex global issue uh, we wanted to explore, which is uh, Julian and his work at WikiLeaks and, and the global press freedoms. Um, but the, the real core of the journey is a father trying to, trying to help and to trying to save his son. And that's what I really lent into. I think that uh, we could probably all relate to the idea that if one of our family members was in uh, dire need of help, uh, in an overseas prison or whatever the issue is, what and what could we do to help them? And and watching John as a 73-year-old man from the Melbourne suburbs, it kind of easing into retirement. He's a very active guy, but I mean, this when when Julian was arrested in 2019, he he went straight to uh, see him in in Belmarsh Prison, and Julian said to him, "Can you stay and help?" I mean, Julian was virtually silenced from that point on, and so. John as his father and and Stella as his fiance at the time had to step into that void and 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 start to speak and advocate for Julian and it was that threshold which I was really fascinated with and also what do you do how do you build a coalition of help who, who do you speak to and and John went around Europe and ends up going through North America in the film speaking to anyone who will listen whether it be the press whether it be parliamentarians or whether it be uh, supporters of Julian and, and trying to create a network of people uh, who can uh, raise awareness about his issue Julian's persecution but also the issue of, of press freedom in our time so all of those things trying to tie them together is really seen through John's interactions with the world so the, the film itself is an observational journey uh, about a family so it's very intimate the the the, the time that we spend with the family is very close uh, quarters. I mean, I lived with John for a period of time in London, as did our cinematographer. So, you know, it was during COVID, we're in our own bubble, and we would ride to the courthouse in a taxi each morning. And, and it's through that process of earning their trust and asking the questions they may not want to hear, but also hearing them talk to other people from the press that 
we come to understand John and his journey. I found that particularly humanising around John, the repetition of him being asked by people, certainly with good intentions, how is Julian? How is Julian? How's he doing? And he has various answers to that question. At one point he says, well, uh, you know, I say well, but I don't really mean that. And that's one sort of indicator of seeing behind uh, these people, which are symbols to the rest of the world. But, you know, this idea that Sanja's trial is obviously, a, you know, a major political event as well as a family event. How else did you try and show behind that curtain that the world's media, I suppose, don't get to see? Um, I think just spending time with him. I mean, John is, John, John, John is, and, and, and during that period of filming was a conduit to Julian in, in, for, for the press in that way. And, um, I mean, that question that you raised about people approaching John and asking him how Julian is, I mean, I, I heard it so many times. I would ne- I would never ask John that question. I mean, I, I probably wanted to stand other things and, and 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 in witnessing those interviews, you could see a, a, a kind of I get a, a repetition of, of people trying to understand Julian's state of mind, of what position he was in, what his plans were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, so John and Stella in particular were um, particularly during Julian's time in the embassy um, were under an enormous amount of stress, and uh, as we've later learned, being surveilled by the CIA, and um, you know plans were made to assassinate Julian or poison him and. And this has all come to light. Um, but what what that creates, I guess, is is, is around the family is a is, is a bubble of trust. And so stepping into that, I was very wary of that, very respectful of that. But I also knew that I needed to spend a period of months trying to observe and capture what um, I felt that the real experience was of their journey. So I chose this observational journey. And it was just by watching John and then spending time with him in the evening, um, asking different questions, I guess, more personal questions of him than the press were asking, that we could see these two sides. And in that way, I think John and my relationship started to develop and he could form trust with me and I, I could show him what story I was trying to tell. But it was a very gentle process. I mean, John would spend all day speaking to the press and then come home in the evening and have to deal with me asking him questions. So... I mean, the balance of that is one thing, but I think also just trying to understand the global issues at stake as well sits underneath the story. So in that way, the film is is only accessible through John's explanation of the world, and I think it's through those press interviews we get a really clear idea of what their battle is and what, what's, what's truly at stake. Gabriel, observational documentary making is, well, it contains, I suppose, a filter or a lens. You've got a viewfinder to separate yourself from the subjects, but you didn't really have that viewfinder to separate yourself. How objective can you be about your own brother and your own father? Well, I think this is what was great about having, um, you know, uh, Ben Lawrence and Karen Johnson on, on the project as well, but I, I had never I had never worked with Ben before or uh, Karen Johnson, our editor. So they brought in a very different perspective than my own. So we were, you know, constantly um, talking things over and then and, and looking at things in a different way, just because there was input from people who were outside and able to give their perspective. So I think that that part of the process was really important for me to to bring in some outside perspectives so that uh, we would and I think the film is better for it because you know I think if it was solely you know if I was directing and producing it would be a a totally different project 
But yes, I think, I think without my involvement, we wouldn't have been able to get such an intimate uh, behind the scenes um, type footage. So it's a sort of balance, I guess, you know, because we don't have this behind the scenes footage without uh, that level of trust that you bring as a family member, but you also have to have uh, to make the picture feel real and feel feel non-biased. We, we also need those outside elements, which I think Ben and, and Karen really brought into it. I suppose the project as a whole benefits from the trust of an insider and the trust of an outsider. Uh, John Shipton, obviously Julian's father in the film, says there's a desire for a narrative in this story and that life isn't really like that. There is no storyline that captures everything. Maybe the lack of a storyline is in itself uh, an ending and there's that really sort of poignant ending where John is being interviewed in the garden and a horse walks by and it's a very, very low-key end to what is one of the most important sort of stories of our times. Did that just happen or, or did you seek for that moment to happen? Um, we were always looking for an ending for this film and we, we discussed it constantly. We were filming for, um, you know, close to a couple of hundred, two, close to 200 days in the end and we had an edit period of about eight months. So, I mean, we were grappling with what what is the end of this story. I mean, we certainly wanted the film to stand up in 10 years' time so you can look back at it as a time capsule and it of itself explained itself. Um, you didn't need to have too much kind of uh, assumed knowledge going into it. I think what that ending of the film does, and I find it really beautiful, I find it poetic, I think it speaks to the idea of the title of the film being a journey and, and John's ongoing journey in that it is simply one chapter. It also speaks to the idea of activism and supporting um, the beliefs and, and following beliefs within yourself. And what I mean by that is the, the when I made the film, the thing that struck me um, the most powerfully was the supporters of Julian who I met on the street. These are people who would either spend their time for over seven years outside the embassy or outside the prison, uh, sorry, outside the prison, but also outside uh, the Old Bailey in London during the, the extradition hearing. And these people typically came from countries uh, who had a lived experience of their freedom of speech and freedom of press being uh, limited, being prosecuted or persecuted, their family members or indeed themselves. And I think that's one thing that really occurred to me. It's very difficult to understand what that means or what that looks like if you haven't experienced it. And I think here in the West, we find it a very abstract issue. And so going back to John, I really felt like he was far more closely aligned with those real lived experience people because of Julian's dire situation. And he was on the on, on the front lines as, as an activist, closer to them than he is to the politicians or the legal team. And so the ending of the film speaks to that ongoing belief in one cause. It may be someone's cause in their life. John's cause is fighting for Julian. But the key is how do you keep going? And it was this inbuilt self-belief. It was the energy that you receive from the world. And I love the line that he says is that not being afraid helps. And I, I take that with me. I think that's a really beautiful thing because at times in life we, we can feel afraid. But at the, at the end of the film... I. For me, John is such an inspirational character um, and and some of the phrases and some of the, the terms and some of the um, statements that he makes throughout, I, I think really sit with people. That's been my impression of the audience's take out of, of, of watching the film. So it, it really was a journey in trying to shape it, all of those issues. 
He really does have a philosophical way about him when he speaks about wanting to use his hands and building things. It's almost like a simple simplicity, complexity type uh, take he has on the world. Gabrielle, you're not actually part of the film on screen except for very briefly. Was there your intention to stay off screen? And if it was, why did you break that rule to appear in that one scene? Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was never my intention to stay uh, off screen. I think we just, um, you know, uh, it, uh, I arrived, you know, the, the day I arrived in London, I just got in the cab with my uh, my new sister-in-law and my dad and, and I was there and, 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 and that, that was sort of it. We didn't really uh, make a conscious decision to stay in or stay out. I think Ben even makes a, uh, Ben even made a comment in the film that, oh, well, you're in the film now. And, and, and that, that was it. That was the whole discussion about whether I would appear in the film or not. So, I mean, to me, uh, you know, to me, we were always just trying to observe, observe life and, and and I was there that day, and and I was on camera that day as part of Julian's family, and so that was it was never really a conscious um, decision to be in in or out in that sense. On ABC RN, I'm Andy Park. Ben Lawrence and Gabriel Shipton are my guests in the drawing room. We're talking about their documentary Ithaca, and of course Julian Assange. Talking to Nils Meltzer, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, I mean, he says that when Assange's legal team first contacted him, he didn't want to get involved, but uh, he had to set aside his own emotional bias. I mean, that speaks to the impact of the global narrative of Assange, doesn't it, Ben? Yeah, very much. I mean, that that statement that uh, Melsa makes is, uh, I can really relate to. I mean, when, when Gabriel approached me, I was intrigued and straight away on board. I'd followed Julian's story and WikiLeaks' story for the past decade, as a lot of people had, and um, particularly the way journalism was disrupted, you know, in 2010 by, by the work of WikiLeaks. Uh, it was quite amazing. The world hasn't been the same since. But um, the the global narrative of the, has certainly had an impact. And, and when Melzer made that comment about his prejudice towards Julian and not understanding where it came from really resonated with me because everyone has an opinion about Julian. And, and often they can't determine or pinpoint where it came from or what it is, why they feel the way they do. But there has been an overwhelming personal narrative uh, placed upon him uh, probably unlike any other journalist, the amount of scrutiny he would he's had to live under uh, and work under uh, has has been quite intense. And when you look at the record that they have, it's it, it's remarkable considering that pressure. But over time, as I looked at it and spoke to people like Nils Melser and others, um, and you start to read the the, the court documentation and 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 what other court cases are going on around the world, particularly in regards to what went on in the embassy you get a sense of the machinations of going what is going on behind the scenes. And I think it's been a, a, a clear intent to, um, to, to create that prejudice within, within people. And, and so it's been a journey for me as well to understand that. You show that in uh, 2017, the embassy where Julian was living, the Ecuadorian embassy in London, was bugged and that everything was being recorded. That really gave an astonishing insight into the blurry line between the reality and the paranoia uh, that Julian must have felt, Gabriel. You really captured that well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And 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 that's right. Often, often it's written off as paranoia. I remember for years and years... Um, Julian, when Julian was in the embassy, he was he was always concerned about 
you know, final extradition to the US. He was never really concerned about, um, you know, uh, answering to these allegations or the allegations in Sweden. It was always about the US and and a, and a, and, a, and a secret indictment there. So even to the to the extent that when he was taken from the embassy uh, in in 2019 and the indictment from the US was served, uh, it was it was almost like an "I told you so" moment um, that that people, you know, for 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 forever he was being called paranoid, and and all of a sudden there it was laid bare this indictment that he'd been called paranoid for for so long. Uh, so I think with the surveillance in the embassy. And how that's how that's sort of uh, come about through whistleblowers from the security company that was actually hired by the Ecuadorian government to protect Julian uh, was co-opted by uh, the CIA to surveil Julian. And there are even plans. Uh, this was all confirmed as well by over 30 intelligence, uh, current and former intelligence community members in the US. Uh, three investigative journalists wrote a 6,000 word um, piece uh, for Yahoo News about about um, about this situation where the CIA had uh, co-opted this uh, security firm who was supposed to be protecting them to surveil Julian, and they surveilled meetings with his lawyers, with his psychologists. Uh, there were even plans within the CIA to kidnap Julian. Uh, plans to kidnap him even made it all the way to the White House, uh, where Trump's um, advisor at the time said, "You know, this is crazy. You can't kidnap." Uh, this guy, but the, 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 there was also plans to poison Julian, but they sort of never made it out of the CIA. Everyone uh, knew how insane that were, but that's the that's the sort of level uh, of planning and, and things that are going on behind the scenes that uh, we we always sort of knew were happening, but uh, we couldn't we never had the sources to confirm it. So now the sources are there. So you know we're no longer um, you know paranoid. This is this is reality for us. Ben, it sounds like as an outsider to, well, the family, but not the story, you're acutely aware of the perceptions of uh, Julian and, you know, the story by the public, whether they be conscious or unconscious. In 2020, the extradition was overturned, but the decision was based on the risk to Assange's health, not about the journalism or the espionage merits of the case. How did that begin to change things? And do you think it has? I think that extradition hearing was was really critical in, in trying to understand um, Julian's story and and the story of of, of his defence because his lawyers laid out a really clear narrative as to uh, what the issues uh, against him were in regards to WikiLeaks redactions and and issues like that and they were able to bring in experts and really go into granular depth about uh, what was done and how it was done responsibly. Etc. So I think it. I think w- when you look at that extradition hearing, what's on the public record now is a, a is a really detailed account of of uh, Julian and WikiLeaks history. So I think I think it's really important in that regard. What what was surprising is uh, firstly that uh, it was a no extradition. I mean the the feeling was at the time that uh, Julian the decision was going to be that the UK were going to extradite Julian uh, in that district court, but. Um, the, what they found was that they could not extradite him because there was risk that uh, the risk was too high that Julian would suicide, and in the oppressive conditions of a U.S. prison, um, that was only going to be magnified, and they 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 couldn't manage that. But what they did find is that um, what uh, they said that Julian's activities were illegal. So 
that is a really dire decision that really impacts uh, journalism and really impacts uh, the freedom of the press because it basically said that what the press do is illegal. And that was the response from uh, most major outlets is that under UK law, which is what it was tested under, um, that's what they found. That was at a district level. I mean, it's moving up through the court systems now. We have a, we have a, a decision coming through in the next few days. Um, but if this uh, court case heads to the US, these are the type of issues that they will have to deal with. And I think what's happened is that the press uh, globally uh, have rallied around Julian because they have seen this court case as a test of their freedoms. And I think there's a really um, strong battle going on between governments and the press, but particularly at the centre of that is the internet and the flow of information is so fluid that uh, when you have a, a, a press outlet uh, having a, a leaker uh, giving public interest documents to them and they're able to publish it straight away when normally we've had to wait 30 or 40 years for some information, uh, governments are reacting uh, quite aggressively. And so I think this, this battle is going to go on for a long time, but Julian's battle is really at the nexus of it. I mean, some people say it's the most important press freedom court case in 300 years. So th there's really a lot at stake. And I, I think that's what's what's happening in the public consciousness now, aside from the issue of, of his persecution as, as, a, as a person, as a human, the way he's been treated. So that's what I've noticed in terms of the public narrative. Gabriel and Ben, congratulations on this film and thank you so much for your time tonight in the drawing room. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Gabriel Shipton and Ben Lawrence have been my guests in the drawing room. Ithaca is in cinemas from April 21. Check online for details. And if this conversation has raised any concerns for you and you need to talk to someone, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.